I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Hello, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Charlie Manolis, Chief Scientist at Crocodilus Park. Hey, Charlie, how are you? Hi, guys, how are you doing? Very good, mate. And we're at the park. What an amazing place. Yeah, shame about the weather. It's nice and warm. It's a yeah. hot day. Yeah. Must be hot for you guys, I take it. Uh, we left a bit of heat on the way up here, didn't Did we? Did you? It's actually not seen like a, quite a difference between shade and in the sun yeah. as up here. Like you get in the shade, it's really nice yeah. if you get right out into it. And that's actually exactly how the crocs have to think. Yeah, yeah. Is okay. If you're stuck out in the sun or you find a bit of shade. So we're still learning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> crocs have got it somewhere. No, it's great weather for crocodiles, yeah. yeah. So um, this is obviously a, a tourist attraction. People can come yep. here and see a croc and a lot of other things. Well, actually, uh, Crocodilus Park, we, we started thinking about Crocodilus Park probably in the early 1990s. And what you see now was probably not really what we envisaged. What we saw it as was a, a research centre, conservation and research centre for crocs. And, but as we sort of went through with that, that goal... Uh, you know, things changed, you know, it, it was going to be difficult to try and fund that ourselves. And so we turned to tourism as a, as a means to really fund our research and conservation activities. And that's really what Crocodilus Park does. Um, on one hand, it's a visitor experience, you know, you see crocodiles, uh, you can go on a uh, boat in our little river, see them in a very natural sort of setting, and you learn about them. And, that, and that's really one of our big things, you know, is to educate people about crocodiles, and hopefully then, you know, the public can make a, a more rational decision on on their management and conservation. And um, so, yeah, so we serve many purposes. There's tourism, there's production, there's research, we do consulting, we do filming, we do, you, you name it, we wear so many different hats. And more importantly, we also house the office for the um, IUCN Crocodile Specialist Group, a group of about 650 crocodile biologists from all around the world. And we, uh, you know, the office is here. Graham Webb is the chair and I'm the deputy chair. So, so yeah, so we work on a lot of different things and tourism's just one of them. I'm a big fan of anyone that can monetize conservation and education. Mm. Two really important things that the government doesn't give enough to, and if you can monetize it, fantastic. Well, I think yeah, you you have to. Um, it's okay. I mean, I mean, I lived in Sydney for a while, and it was great. And my biggest problem was a possum running through my ceiling, yeah, and making a lot of noise. And so I dutifully, you know, ring up the council and say, get this damn thing out of my roof. But you imagine living here in northern Australia where, you know, we've got almost one crocodile per person. You know, we're, we're dealing with a, a critter that wants to eat you, wants to eat your dog, wants to eat your children. They turn up all over the place. And so you can't treat them like, a possum, you know, down in southern, in, in, in Sydney, you know, you really do have to make them economically valuable to the community in some way. Uh, otherwise, the public will just not tolerate having Australia's largest predator so close to them all the time, you know, where they can't go swimming, where they, you know, you know they've got to be very careful all the time. So making them economically valuable uh, has been the secret to our conservation success. Yeah, and not just here, 
American alligators, there's many other crocodile species that the only reason that they've been able to bounce back is that they've been made economically valuable in some way, you know, whether that's direct consumption like farming or indirect through tourism where you know, people take photos of them you know everything has a place but it's all designed to make crocodilians valuable to the to people so they'll want to have them otherwise yeah, who, who wants a great big critter living next to them that can eat them? It's a, yeah? it's a great thing to do. And, yeah, like when you say, like, population, population-wise, that you're same amount of crocodiles for people up here? Yeah, well, pretty well, yeah. It's if you add, yeah, sold... Yeah, because the Northern Territory, we don't have a huge human population. Mm. We, we've got about close to 100,000 saltwater crocodiles now in the wild, in the wild. And that's probably equal to or perhaps more than what was here when white people arrived right so we've brought them back to pristine levels and at the same time as we've done that we've had an industry uh we've got a wild harvest you know we collect eggs we've done all this stuff sustainably and brought that population back to pristine levels but then you can't rest on your laurels you know, when, when there's only 10 crocodiles left, the public is very, very, very supportive. Yeah, let's bring them back. When there's 100,000 of them, they're all saying, I think we might have enough. <laughs> and that's what happens. Not just crocs, it happens with wolves, it happens with bears, any of these predators. The public is very supportive when there's low numbers. But when you, you do have a successful program and you bring them back, and suddenly they're eating people's cattle or their sheep or their, their kids, even worse, and, and preying on humans. That's when the public can then turn on you. So, so places like Crocodilus Park are important to keep that crocs in people's faces, you know, and educate people and, and you know, tell them about the program. You know, in the Northern Territory, we have quite a transient population. It changes uh, people coming and going. So you've got to keep that program just out there all the time all the time as we have more and more people on the planet we are encroaching onto animals environment so we we're faced with a lot more extinction yeah um do you find a lot more people are sympathetic to crocodiles than ever before or well, i don't know whether people are, are sympathetic more sympathetic i mean i our goal has never been to make people love crocodiles I mean, my wife hates them, you know, but it, it, you know, I don't mind that. The main thing is she understands the role that they play and their conservation is important. So it's, it's very hard, you know, people have an inherent dislike of snakes and, and crocs. They all, you know, they're, they're cold, they're, they're scaly. It's something in our, in our psyche that sort of says that, you know, we should be fearful of these animals like sharks. And so it's hard to make people love them. But even here... You know, 50-odd thousand people will hold a little crocodile and the first thing they say is, oh, jeez, they're really soft. I thought they they were hard and and cold. And straight away, you've achieved something. You know, you've changed people's perceptions of them. So, yeah, it's it's really education. And, look, worldwide... We face uh, so many challenges and human population growth is, is, is one of the, the key ones because with that comes habitat loss. And so in, in many countries like Vietnam, um, Thailand right next door, it's too late for them. You know, the, the habitat's gone. But they can still, and have done, brought crocodiles back in certain places. So they've set up some small wild populations and we've been involved with a lot of that. And in other countries, 
these programs have sort of grown with the human population. And so, yeah, how do you... Well, so let me rephrase it. You know, if, you, if you've got a block of land and you've got a choice, you can make your money from that land with rice or cattle or by harvesting maybe some of the wildlife sustainably and keeping the habitat, which one do you want? I think most people will think about it and say, well, yeah, of course, it's always better to keep the habitat. And so it's getting that message across that we can do it sustainably. And, you know, and as I said, there's many populations of crocs now recovering, you know, Mexico, both species, Argentina, and many, many countries. And that's been linked to people's livelihoods. You know, it's not done... You, you can't do a lot of this stuff independently. You know, people are the problem and people are also the answer. And so where you can involve uh, rural population so they get something back from wildlife in, in some way and, and the crocs, then the incentives are there to, to protect the crocs, to protect the habitats, and you start achieving uh, something that's, you know, really positive. And, and so we are, you know, huge advocates of, you know, linking... That, those conservation incentives to uh, people and their livelihoods. You know, it's very, very important. And uh, even here, uh, Aboriginals uh, here get money for the eggs. It's probably the only cash income that they get, you know, really from other than, you know, uh, benefits. And it's important. You know, Papua New Guinea, the same. You know, people rely on a, a, a sustainable harvest of crocodile eggs to get the money to put their kids through school every year. Yeah, and and suddenly you find that crocodile population is increasing. You know, so and but every every country, every culture is a little bit different. So you just got to tailor it in the appropriate manner. Yeah. So here you get the the local people go out and collect eggs for you and get paid for them. Well, we uh, we, we 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 don't set a a set of rules, I suppose, for because we're very we're big. You know, it, we got a huge mass of land at the top end and getting between places is, is not easy in the wet season. And so helicopters are the, the real way to get around. But so in some cases, the farms themselves will have arrangements with landowners and collect the eggs. Farms may contract people to collect their eggs for them. Uh, in Manningrida, the people themselves go out and collect their eggs and incubate their eggs. Uh, likewise, an Arafura swamp. So, so it just depends on the community how far they want to go. You know, some people are quite happy to have it done for them, and they just receive a, a check at the end of the the season. Others want to go that little bit further and value add. So, uh, we we try and help them to achieve what it, whichever one they want. You know, and. Um, uh, but link, you know, you just got to link it. They've got to be the first cab off the rank. You know, you talk about commercialising and economics. The landowners have got to be the most important one, I think. You know, because without them, we're all buggered. Because they own the habitat. You know, so, and and so, you know, it is. It's significant amount of money goes into these communities. They're very supportive of the program. Uh, there's training is put in place for their rangers who do become involved with monitoring and the eggs, and. Um, yeah, and it's 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 great to see them feel proud that they're part of this this whole uh, this crocodile management program. It's good for them. It's good for us. You know, it's good for conservation. That's the main thing. So they yeah. they grab the eggs to keep populations under control. You take the eggs. Well, no, not no. We we um the like you you can use egg collection perhaps as a population control mechanism, right? 
However, with crocs and just about every species, if you leave the eggs, they, they die before they even hatch. 80% of them will flood or they'll overheat. And, and so, so there's a huge mortality. So the eggs that you're taking, most of those would never have contributed to the population anyway. And then people say, well, what about those last few you know, that, that uh, might have? Well, the thing is that you, we don't take every egg. You know, it's impossible to find them. And, and the eggs that are at the end of the season that are hard and economically it's not viable to collect, they do hatch. And they're the ones that have got the best chance of survival. But then those few hatchlings that get out, 40 years ago, a lot of them would survive because there was no crocodiles. Now we've got all these big crocodiles, they eat all the little ones. So, <laughs> so really, that's why the program, which collects something like 100,000 eggs per year in the Northern Territory alone, has had no significant impact. Because, you know, they just, they, those individuals would never, ever have reached the population. Yeah. I think I read in your book, the Freshwater Crocodile book. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, something like only 1% of the animals that are born yeah. will, reach will reach adulthood. Yeah. Adulthood. Yeah. That, that's 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 pretty well, yeah. And that's a, probably a conservative estimate. Yeah, it, it's a hard life. But even after all of that, taking a hundred potentially a hundred thousand eggs, one percent survive. The population's still going up. And that's because of population dynamics. You see, you people often. That, that's why it's very hard to explain it to the public. Is they think if you take out an animal, therefore your population has just gone down by one. But with, with crocodiles particularly, as the population has increased, we've got more and more bigger crocs. So the higher proportion of the population are big. When I started work on crocs, uh, the average size of a salty was probably about you know, four feet, you know, 1.2 metres. Now the average animal is about three and a half to four metres, the average. So as the, the numbers of big animals has gone up, the number of small ones is going down because the big ones kill the little ones. So, so when you've got a recovered population, even now, if we, we said tomorrow, you know, let's go and let's take you know, 20,000 crocodiles from the farms and put them out in the wild you know, to do a good thing, they're not going to survive. It would be cosmetic because the, the big crocs are just going to kill them. And so, so big animals are controlling the population and the little fellas. All right? And so, so in some habitats, removing one large crocodile may allow 50 smaller ones to survive. So you may actually increase the population by removing that one big crocodile, right? And that is what happens. Because, you know, we've done this with even here, where, you know, the large dominant animal, if you remove him, everyone goes, oh, thank goodness for that, he's gone. But then another one, pop, next one comes along, and the next one, and the next one. It's just the only way that you can change the dynamics is to go and change the population and by the culling um, and so yeah we've reached saturation point I mean we've got you know they're overflowing you know they're overflowing into Darwin Harbour so there's 300 or so animals that are removed from Darwin Harbour every year and you know the population is now pretty well stable or increasing very very slowly but it's still getting bigger in terms of biomass you know the average size of animal is still increasing and increasing so um, that raises, you know, uh, it's great. It's, it's from a conservation point of view. We think it's, it's marvellous what we've done. Right? But um, 
the public, it's it's a lot more big crocodiles that can cause problems when they go fishing, when they go camping, you know. Yeah. Uh, they may see it a little bit differently, but it's, uh, you know, it's... So, yeah, so these harvests, uh, and particularly eggs, and, and every species that's been studied where there's been egg harvest, not in, in any of the 26 or 27 cases have egg harvests had a significant impact because they mostly die. You know, the world would be covered in crocodiles if they all made it, you know? <laughs> Here's yeah. the, the main that's reason... That wouldn't be bad. <laughs> yeah. uh, is the main reason for their bounce back the um, it's now they're now protected? It was protection for one. That was probably the the, the main thing in the, in the late seventies. Was it uh, nineteen seventy one here okay. in the Northern Territory? Nineteen seventy four in Queensland. They're always a bit slow. <laughs> and nineteen sixty or nineteen seventy in WA. Yeah, protection like legal protection um, is one, but you couldn't have done it if you didn't have the habitats. Right, so so you know the Northern Territory, I suppose we're we're rather spoiled. You know, we we don't have lots of communities along the coast like Queensland. The the, the mangroves are the same as they were a hundred, two hundred, three hundred years ago. So, if your habitats are intact, crocodiles will bounce back very very quickly, very quickly because you know the you know even one one pair of breeders, will, two animals will breed. And if you know, they might have 30 or 40 offspring who'd now survive because there's no big crocs. So suddenly your population goes from two to 32, and then they, you know, and then it just keeps bouncing up. So, so habitats are the key. So in India, China, those places where the habitats are gone, any sort of population growth of crocs will always be, you know, never be the same because it just they haven't got the habitat to to go into. But what will happen is they'll spill out and they'll end up in places like Singapore. Like Singapore had no salties left 20 years ago and now they've got them. Now they've got a problem crocodile program. Now they've got a crocodile research program. Now they've got education because uh, these salties are coming down from Malaysia and, and, and suddenly they're, they're back. Yeah? So, it's, again, it's good for croc uh, conservation. Yeah? A species that was extinct is now back in Singapore. But... Yeah, they've now got to you know, bring in programs to make sure of yes, human you know, safety for humans. Yeah, because yeah, education up to this point would have been non-existent. None. They weren't there. Why it's on they TV. Education? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now it's it is really yeah because one of their main prime habitats is a little park that people visit. So now yeah, it's it's signage and they come down here uh, and get um, advice on the best way to approach it with, you know for crocodile traps if they need them we're assisting them with um, telemetry you know working out where these animals move to um but yeah so so it, yeah it's, it's it's good in many ways and you know in other ways it's uh yeah but it's good countries like singapore have taken it in their stride and said you know we're going to do the right thing malaysia's done you know so in many countries they do uh you know have done the right thing and are still doing the right thing and seeking advice on on how to best do it yeah i say it a lot i think things are turning around a bit there is you know it, it's it's for a lot of animals it is you know pretty hard going you know like but um crocs because people don't like them generally yeah um if you ask you know like when was the last time someone came knocking at your door and said we're collecting money for 
spider conservation, <laughs> you know, like or, or insect, yeah, yeah, bird second. elephants, <laughs> tigers, yeah. whales. You know, if they came in and said, "Look, you know, we want to save this lizard, you know, that lives in the Blue Mountains," you know, close the door. <laughs> yeah, they, they don't have that charisma. And so, what that's allowed is for us as biologists to to do things with management without that public scrutiny. You know. Had we tried to do it with pandas or, or tigers or lions, everyone would have been you know, breathing down our necks. So mm. we're able to do things with management, get results and said, right, this is why we now know that what we're doing is, is fine and it's been able to, to go everywhere. But the, the problems are essentially the same. Same with um, lions, the same with tigers, same with uh, wolves. Wherever you have predators living with people and where there's conflict you've got to look at programs that i think that that um involve the people and and that where they get something out of it to to want to conserve the predator otherwise it just it, it just doesn't work tiger conservation is a great example you know like after what decades of you know people collecting money and throwing it at, you know you know tigers are still in decline and yet still, you know, when there's tens of thousands of them, tens of thousands of them in captivity, you know, in Southeast Asia, animal rights people will still say, no, you can't sell one, you know. So, in, in other words, by perhaps using that captive population, you take the, the market pressure off the wild. You, you create a legal source that's controlled and regulated, and you know, take the pressure off them. A lot of wildlife, you take that pressure off, you know, they can bounce back. You know, they, they, they've got the mechanisms to, to bounce back, you know, take it off. Rhino, the same. Look at, look at the, was it the black rhino? You know, 200 left or something. So total protection has not worked. End of story. Just has not worked. White rhino, South Africa got more than they can poke a stick at because they farmed them. They made them valuable to people. And suddenly people were growing them, you know, and, and, and increasing the numbers. So, so I think, you know, for, for people all around the world, they've perhaps got to think a little bit outside the square. You know, their, their emotions sometimes, you know, control what they do. Yeah, I think you yeah. said it really well earlier when you said uh, people are the problem, but people are also the solution. Yeah, exactly. Oh, very much so. You know, you, you, whatever solution you come up with, it must involve people, whether it's where the animals live, those people, or, or the people actually in cities. And, and really, education is the big thing, you know, at, at the end of the day, because, you know, we've all heard about, you know, ask a kid in, in Sydney, you know, where milk comes from, and he'll say it's from the shop. And that's a real tragic yeah. place to be, where, where kids have, have lost. And, and Australia particularly, we're so urbanised now, you know, how much of our population lives in city relative to rural areas? So... Kids have lost, many kids lose that, that attachment to wildlife and, and they just see it as something that you see on TV and occasionally mum and dad will take them to a zoo sometime, you know, if mm. they're lucky. But, uh, yeah, mum and dad may have never been captured in that But, life. yeah, there's generation after generation yeah. after generation. And so, yeah, the, the, and our school system certainly doesn't, I think, teach them the right way. But, but you know, conservation through sustainable use is a legitimate tool for uh, for conservation of wildlife where applicable and yeah you know, we should be educating you know our, our kids and, and our adults for that matter 
and because um, you know once they see the realities uh, you know but but again it, it, a lot of this stuff comes down to money well that's yeah. what we do with Animals Anonymous yeah. right now I've got presenters in Adelaide doing school yeah. shows educating kids with crocodiles and very very they're they're one of the most valuable things you can do yeah I, I can show you a poster just here that was made in 1982 or 3 showing a ranger with a little kid and a crocodile and you know those little kids are now adults and they turn up and they say you know i remember you you know, <laughs> you brought that crocodile into school you know when i was four yeah that 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 experience the touching you know uh touching wildlife and 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 you know just close getting talked to about it is you know you leave lasting impressions and and that's what you want you know because they those children will become adults and with a bit of luck yeah, that they'll you know have a better understanding of what the world needs for conservation. Yeah. Yeah. So get so getting on to that, we're we're sitting at Crocodilus Park. Um, mm. Is that mainly what you do here? Is well, we yeah, we, we, it's education. We have a museum that tries to you know we we try to explain to people you know what crocodiles are all about their their biology their their management. Their, and we tried to do that in many ways through the work that we do um, in different countries. And, um, yeah, because I think, you know, people can go to a zoo and just see an animal, and that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And they can, if they can read, they can read the sign. But, um, you know, often the, the sort of research and the, the work that went into understanding that animal is not there. And, and so, and the public are not, I don't think they're silly at all, you know. You've explained things in nice, simple terms. Oh, of course they'll grasp it. So even when we started Crocodile's Park, a lot of people said, oh, no, people aren't interested in learning, you know. Oh, that was interesting. We found the exact opposite. People are interested in learning and kids are and you make it simple so that they can understand it. So education is really a, one of our big platforms. Not, And that goes from the public that come here it goes to uh, students around the world who are working on crocs. We've set up a, uh, a grant system where we can provide them with some money to, to help them to, to do that work. Um, we've run training courses here, not only for Australians, but for overseas agencies and, and private people about crocodile conservation, management, surveys, monitoring. So, yes, yeah, so education in, in the broader sense is really a big, yeah big thing I'm, I'm sitting here educating you now Steve <laughs> <laughs> you're saying crocodiles are getting bigger and bigger is it true that reptiles never stop growing they just grow slower no well, well I don't know about all reptiles but certainly uh, crocodiles will reach a point where they stop you know um, and that's now been demonstrated it's unfortunate that they live for so bloody long that uh, you know you, you've really got to have uh, animals under observation for for long periods of time. But but yeah, they, the soldies will they'll, they'll as they grow they grow fast when they're little, and then as they get bigger and bigger they grow slower and slower and slower. But then they do reach a point where they just stop. And some so when you find a, a 4.5 meter crocodile out in the wild. You know, some of those individuals have reached their their size, their maximum size, and that's it. They'll just stay the same for another 10, 20 or 30 years or whatever. We, we pulled out a, um, 
one of our crocodiles the other day and um, he was he came in um, in 1994 and so he went out 25 years later and I think he had grown about um, you know 14 centimetres in that time. Hmm. In 20 odd years? <laughs> in 25 years. Wow. So he had already come in, obviously, cl- close. <laughs> close to, <laughs> we, we, don't worry, they, they weren't knocked back on the feet. But um, so, yeah, so he, that's, that's nothing. And, and I've got freshies that I've had out in the wild that have been marked uh, since 1978. And, and one of those females I caught caught up after um it was 22 uh, about 40 it was yeah close to 48 years uh, 40 38 years after she'd been initially captured and she'd grown two and a half centimeters that that time. yeah so so they, they do they do stop eventually uh, but you know some of the but but the actual growth, even minor, may still go on for 50 years before it does stop because some of these big crocs can live till they're 75, 80, 100 years. So, Is that salties and freshies can live that long? The bigger they are, the longer they can live. It's a little bit like mammals, you know, like little ratty things. Mice don't live as long, whereas an elephant you know, does. So it is linked to size. So these large... But, you know, having said that, there are individuals um, in zoos. There was a couple of uh, medium-sized crocs that passed away, you know, that were in Germany during the bombing, you know, and they were, they were adults then and only recently passed away. So, you know, still reaching 70, 80 years old. So, so we so, don't know how long they could live potentially even longer. Even the, yeah, even the little guys. Certainly the salties, we know 100% that they can get to at least 75 to 80 years. You know, we, we know that just from you know, the bone rings in, in big individuals. So, And because they stop growing, you don't know how long they've stayed at those lengths. So, so 100 is certainly pretty achievable. I'm not sure that I'll you know, get to track them that, that far, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> Here's a question I've always yeah. wanted to ask, and I can't find mm. an answer anywhere. Yeah. Uh, on my freshies, when I grab them, they've yeah. got those two little things that come Underneath, out from yeah. the lower mandibles, and they stick yeah. out, and yeah. they can go back in again. What are they? Oh, that's a secret. We're going to let okay, it. That's fair enough. I'm going to pause this. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they're, um, no, they're, yeah. they're, they're, um, they're, they're common. The common name for them is, well, the common name is chin glands, believe it or not or gula glands, and there's two there. And if you look inside the cloaca, just with um, some uh, tweezers, you can open it up and you'll find two more just inside the sides of the cloaca. Mm. And those, they're little glands and they secrete a substance. And uh, that substance is used for chemical communication between animals. Because you, you can actually collect it from even your animals, squeeze some into it and then take it somewhere totally different and put it in the water where there's crocs and they'll all go crazy. <laughs> and, and so it's um, the more dominant animals in a population will have more stuff in it, right? And so it seems to be linked to dominance. Uh, and so they tend to be a bit like testosterone, you know, they, they, they produce a lot more. Females will put it onto their nests as a, a marking um, type thing. And so when you consider that a, a, a salty or any 
croc can pick up a smell, you know, from two kilometres away, or more sometimes, I think. Um, you know, the chemical communication is pretty important. And in one of those, in one sp- crocodile species at least, the chemical in a male is different to that in a female, um, in, in one of the African crocs. But, you know, there's still a lot of research to be done. But, yeah, that's, uh, that's what they do. And when they're often aggressive and, and open their mouth, these things will ext- uh, protrude more so. And that, I think, is to get the, you know, the smell. Not only is it telling you visually that it, I'm going to bite you if you come close, but it's, it may be also emanating the scent that you and I may not be able to smell. But I don't know. Do you guys, can you smell your crocodiles when you go into a room? I cannot. Okay. There's people who even here will, in territory, will tell you they can smell crocs when they go to a place. Um, I, I've lost my sense of smell, so I can't, I can't test that anymore. But certainly in the United States, the alligators, they call them musk glands, right? And historically, they used to collect the stuff and call it musk and use it in perfumes, Interesting. And um, I hope it doesn't smell like snake musk. <laughs> well, as I said, I can't. I couldn't tell you anymore because I, I lost my sense of smell. You know. How did you become a nosmic? I love that. I, word, I, so I, I, I'm not a nosmic. God, I didn't know whether to reach over and throttle you or, or be uh, yeah. really, really uh, surprised that doesn't someone knows that reach, word. Reach over and throttle no. anyway. <laughs> to, the, to the kids out there, if you want to want to know whether you've got pool chlorine in the bottle, don't sniff it. <laughs> That's the only thing I can put it down to. Okay. Yeah, I, I took a whiff of chlorine and, and it disappeared. It has to be, if this room was on fire, I'd probably smell the smoke. But it'd have to be very, very strong otherwise. But look, certainly there's a long history of these things being called musk glands in the American literature. It may be that American alligators maybe do have more the, the, the stuff that they secrete is more pungent. But I don't think it's... No, nothing that I saw in the literature said that it's a bad thing, all right? Um, so, but certainly for, for between, you know, and certainly uh, alligators live together in, uh, um, in, in high numbers, but also separated in swamps. So, the, you know, where they can't see each other so, and sometimes not even be able to hear each other, you know, when they're bellowing. So chemical communication can be, you know, very, very, very important. In fact, we, oh, wow, uh, back in the 90s, I kept some animals together and um, uh, in the enclosure and, and that's 19 of them lived in a corner and one of them cruised the entire rest of the enclosure so we separated him put a petition in and those guys still stayed in the corner and he was over at the other end it wasn't until we moved him out totally that all of the others then spread out so he was just keeping them under control they couldn't see him through the petition once he was you know separate chemical sense sense. it's just chemical and that was enough everyone else knew he was dominant and man, they weren't going anywhere. You know, it's, it's like being in the pub and there's a big bully there and, and, and everyone just sort of sits there sipping their drinks, <laughs> frightened to death that he might do something. And, and, um, and so it is a powerful, 
way of communicating. You know? A form of language. Very much so. And you can see animals will, even when they can't visually see each other, that they'll get out of the water. and that, that, So it, it's probably a lot more significant than, than, than we actually think. Yeah. We've sort of mm. lost that a bit, if we ever did have them. You see, like, dogs, we on a tree. Yeah, we, we, you know, we, we've well and truly lost it. But having said that, I think we still retain, you know, everyone loves to smell babies, you know. No one can explain why, but I, yeah. But even babies, I think there is a linkage between that that mum and baby. This, that baby smell is what keeps them together. That's interesting. So, so even though we have lost it, yeah, you know, we we don't notice it. There is probably things there that still that are, uh, you know important from a scent that we don't quite realise anymore. Yeah, we're so far away from the ground now. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah we're, there, there was is. a scientist that um, every day he spent an hour walking on his hands and knees and, and I, was, I thought, well, he's not a dog. What's he going to achieve from that? But apparently the ground stinks and he tuned right into it and he could, he could smell things. I mean, so it's always That's amazing interesting, to me. Yeah. It's interesting. It's always amazing to me when, you, when I used to have my dog and I just would run away and zigzag around yeah. and go and hide somewhere and I'd watch him and he'd follow exactly where I went. Yeah, and then he come up to find me. <clears throat> oh, there, there's so many, and, and Crocs have got a yeah. You know, I mean, they've got these things that you point out um, that are great. That yeah, you know, they've got great vision. They've got great hearing. But the probably for me, you know, I've worked with them for 40 years now, and I still marvel at these. Is the little sensors that they've got on their jaws, you know, the vibration sense sensors, and I've watched. Crocs in my enclosures that that cannot see out of them. You know they can see up, but they can't see. And I've watched them home in on someone walking 50 meters away and follow that person without actually seeing them, just turning their head and always facing that person without being able to see through a concrete wall. Hmm. It's it's like a, and it's just on the, on the, the footsteps. And some of my adults recognise different people's footsteps. Yeah, they'll they'll you know respond differently to different people walking up, uh, just from the vibration. Yeah, just footsteps. I've heard that those sensors in their jaw are more sensitive than our fingertips. Oh yeah, they yeah they, they can pick up a fish um, splashing in a net. Uh, I think it's two kilometres. <laughs> so yeah, so which is why you know this idea that when you go down to the water hole you. You know, run a light across and you don't see a croc and then we're safe <laughs> these you know the moment you hit the water and there's that vibration uh, in in the water they can detect it and they'll come to it yeah so I think that for me is really one of the most um, incredible things you know it's uh, you know so they can hear you know they can feel prey walking down before they've even got to the water you know the, 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 through these senses and and then when you combine all the other senses you know you, you can see why this body shape has been like this for 200 million years you know without a change you know it's 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 a bit like an the alien movies you know they're, they're perfectly adapted as a predator and so why change it yeah, yeah. i always think like early life that touch and feel in water would have been the very first sense. <clears throat> yeah, oh, I think, um, even, well, take an earthworm, you know, a, a very, you know, taxonomically, uh, you know, we would put down pretty low in the in the scheme of things and, you know, no eyes, so they're not seeing things. So, so smell, smell would have to be one of the, one of those first and feel, 
senses that you would develop. If you're a critter that has no eyes, you know, no ears, where you can't hear, you can't see, and, and um, smell uh, becomes one of the most rudimentary things that you can use to either find moisture, uh, you know, or, or food, or, or a girl, a girl earthworm. And, and it was explained to me by a fellow who was actually a... Um, he wasn't even a biologist, and it's, it suddenly made sense, you know, when you, uh, is it, even the lowliest of these invertebrates smell, you know, when, when you don't have eyes, has to be probably the, one of the, the first things that you would have to develop. Otherwise, what could you do? You, you, you couldn't really do anything. You'd just sit there and, I don't know, what you, you'd be waiting for a bus or something. But <laughs> Yeah, so, and, and that came up in a conversation that was to do with um, movement because salties, unlike many other crocodilians, are big-time swimmers. You know, they'll swim long, very long distances across the you ocean. You talked about telemetrics before. How far can they swim? The record at the moment for a salty going across the ocean is 2,000 kilometres. Wow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> they, uh, between here and Timor, they're, they're spotted all the time, you know, on the oil rigs. There's almost certainly we're populating other countries at the moment. So, yeah, these, these things are designed, you know, less bone in their skin, the longer tail. It's all about uh, being able to swim long distances, either across the ocean or around the coast, whichever it is. But, and so we started uh, examining uh, by putting a transmitter on animals to see where they go and what they do and and some of these individuals we we you know we blindfolded them and you know took them on the back of a truck you know and that in the middle of the night you know all very clandestine to an island off darwin and let them go and bugger me these things just went straight out in middle of the water nowhere no land bypassing every river in between and went straight back to where they were caught into the that river not only to the river they were caught in but the spot they were caught in the actual spot in a 100 kilometer river from and, how far away oh this was um from darwin to the mary 200 and something kilometers yeah Bypass the Adelaide River, <laughs> bypass the Howard River, bypass the King, bypass this creek and that creek, and just went straight to where they were caught. And that's not unusual with salties. We've now seen that they can home exceptionally well. And you think, well, how do they do this? You know, is it the stars? Maybe, maybe there's something celestial that they're programming, or is it something in the Earth's magnet, magnetic sort of thing? Um, you know, it, it's people in, in Mexico have been putting magnets on the heads of these problem crocodiles and they put them back to try and disrupt. Uh, but I don't think there's been any c- conclusion. Bridges. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been studies with homing pigeons like that. So, so yeah, so it's, it's really quite bizarre. And, but, and it seems that if you move them past a certain distance, then... They, they, they're a bit buggered and then they get lost they, 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 they can't get their bearings it's like you know someone t- 
took you and blindfolded you and, and dropped you off in Beirut and then took the blindfold off and you go, oh, where am I? You start walking up here and up there and trying to find something familiar. That's what they do when they're moved over four or 500 kilometres away from their site. But if it's within a certain thing, they, they'll home back to a, a spot, you know, like just within here to there in a river. And you think, well, how can they find that? You know, like, and they're low down... And then this chap said to me, oh, maybe it's smell. Because every river has its own signature in terms of its chemical makeup. And in fact, you can pull out an animal out of a river that's lived in for a long time and take a tissue sample, and its tissues will reflect the environment that it lives in. And so rivers, because they're sediments, they have different composition of stuff, you know, they have a signature and... Um, Perhaps they are, you know, perhaps smell is one of the ways that they're, you know, using to, to get back. But it's, they'll go overland to get back home. You know, they're, they're really quite, quite a strong, it's a strong thing. Once they decide, you know, the animals that decide I want to move, you know, I want to leave home, well, they just go. You know, they're not too interested. But the ones that want to get back home, man, they want to get back home. Yeah. Quite it's interesting. Quite, quite amazing, really, to think they can do that. So smelling in the water, though, obviously, just I know they can close their nostrils, but they're taking in the water as well, obviously, in processing Well, that. well, you know, so I don't know. Well, we just don't understand how their their smell works. You know, if you look at a crocodile brain, a big chunk of it, a, a huge chunk of their brain is, is devoted to smell olfaction. You know, you, you look at a photo, there's a large lobe that goes right through to the nostrils. So, so smell is clearly... When you devote such a high proportion of your brain to olfaction, to smelling things, it tells you that there's something, this is something very, very, very important to you. And, and you know, it's, but it's a hard thing to, to, um, to study, you know, like, because most crocs aren't very good subjects <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that. But smell is very important, you know? Yeah, you guys are taking your little salties back to Adelaide yep hopefully and um, little baby salties will avoid food that has a high smell that is very smelly things like fish uh, and even you can have a, a, the world's best meat there and you put an additive on that smells and they'll avoid it Right, so, and there's, you know, because the little little salties don't want to be attracted to high-smelling dead things because there's a good chance there's a big salty sitting there as well who's going to eat you. So they avoid foods with very high smell. Yeah, I've seen them tippy toe between different food types that have been mixed <laughs> together to eat the bits that they that they they like and the bits that they don't. What are yeah. you feeding your hatchling salties? Red meat mostly, but um, wild pork because it doesn't have a high smell, certainly to us, and seems to be quite readily accepted. Low fat, but any you know, even kangaroo meat, uh, but yeah, lean, yeah, because out in the wild they're not eating a lot of fatty stuff. You know, really, kangaroos don't have much fat. Horse horses don't have much fat. Certainly, fish. So, so they're used to a, a quite a lean diet. And so, um, yeah, red meat, you know, with, with 
And once they've started eating, then you put them on to additives like multivitamins and, and die cal- yeah, calcium and phosphorus because bone is such a big part of their body. All, the, all their little osteoderms and, and armour in their back has to be boned up. And, um, yeah, once they get going, there's not much stops them, yeah. So preferably you'd go whole food items if you could. Oh, no, you, you, you look, it's nice, always nice to feed animals live food, uh, like fish, but then you know, some of the fish that we have here carry parasites that are not very nice um, to crocs. Uh, but also... Yeah, sometimes it's hard to get live food. You know, they get used to live food. So, yeah, just finely chopped up red meat or, or, you know, some pork or, you know, even chicken. But chicken tends to be a bit fatty just to get them started. And then you can vary it. You know, once once they're going and they're eating and, you know, they're right, then you can vary it with maybe crickets, you know, uh, and other and other, other prey. But certainly once they're big enough, yeah, yeah, something that has all the bone in it, like a part of a chicken wing with the bone, natural bone goes in yeah and yeah because salties are also very messy eaters you know they, they get in the water and they splash around and wash it and yeah they're just yeah they're really not very nice <laughs> <laughs> and you do what you do because <laughs> oh, it's one of those things you know like they're you know they might be the the, the biggest and you know the the best of all the crocodilians but geez they're they're also uh, finicky you know they're finicky when they're small once they get little you know after a year you know they're, they're fine you know but uh, when they're babies they can be a pain in the ass they're unusual for a reptile too because they spend that first year being protected by mum shepherded by mum well they get it two or three months if they're lucky out okay. of mum and then after that mum eats them if she can you know oh. that, that's yeah they'll cannibalise you know so so the maternity runs out. It, it does actually run out. Um, <laughs> unlike some other species like gar- Indian gharials tend to be, even the males are very, very protective. And in fact, the, the gharials, they'll get together with hundreds of, of hatchlings from all different mothers all together and one or two males will guard them. A yeah. crash. A crash, okay huge there? crash. They're, better, they're doing better than people thought actually um and that's because there's been a a very detailed research program run by a chap in the u.s jeff lang the last few years and he's again doing telemetry he's tracking these things and suddenly you you find that you know these animals are you know moving quite long distances to lay their eggs and then they move back and then you know he's quantified this this very very maternal paternal behavior with the adults with you know literally hundreds and hundreds of little babies um so the population is 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 better than than we thought um still under pressure because people sand mining you know habitat changes um yeah and um so it's 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 difficult it's it's difficult but again um yeah, we, we yeah through programs like this, you know, by helping the country to get this sort of information, you can help them to, you know, develop better management, hopefully. And uh, but it's it's hard that people pressure. You know, it's yeah. Well, I think we're very lucky here, and I mean, you guys might feel a bit crowded in 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 Adelaide. <laughs> Up here, we feel a little. You know, we can drive for ten minutes, and we're out in the out in the scrub. But. But I think that's very, we're very lucky that we've got that. And many other countries, uh, you know, 
that there's some real you know problems with just human population and you know, education and health and become the priorities rather than animal conservation so crocodiles they've been around like you say a couple of couple of hundred million years mm. Kids always, you know, I go to schools and teach kids, and they always say they're dinosaurs. But I correct them and say birds are dinosaurs. But crocs are more related to a bird than they are to other reptiles. Yeah, Is that true? Yeah, they, well, they are actually. Yeah, they're, they're closer to some of the birds and some of their structure, really, than than yeah, you know, than dinosaurs. But but having said that, the birds came later in in evolutionary time, and the crocs do go back. To the dinosaurs, you know, so they are the last of the archosaurians. You know, so that yeah, so if you leave birds out and go back further, you know, really they are the the last of the dinosaurs. They they you know, they, they were there. They, these things were eating dinosaurs at one time. Animals that looked just like a salty, you know, were were eating them. So, and then as time went on, the birds sort of branched off, and and the birds and crocs still have a very very close relationship and um and you know people sometimes say well you know crocs are, or, or birds are just feathered crocodiles yeah <laughs> <laughs> certainly feathered reptiles yeah 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 well so, feathers are just modified scales aren't they really? exactly yeah. yeah just it's another another well yeah modified yeah skin scales that uh, um chitin so, so working mm. with these animals have you ever had any near misses i mean they oh i think you work with any any animal, you, you will always have a, a near miss. Um, I've I've been quite lucky that I haven't, haven't lost anything yet. But um, yeah, no, look, it, it's 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 invariable. The, the, it's like driving. You know, you, you the longer you drive, at some stage you, you're going to you know run over something or you know have a little accident or something. You know, it's just one of those things. So, uh, but we certainly pride ourselves here with you know safety first and but i think the the real key you know is if, if you understand the animal you know then then you you've, you've got a much better chance of anticipating what can happen you know if, if you you've got to interact with it and i think that's where um because i see it with with other people when they you know when they don't understand the animal you know they, they don't really have that feel for it and that's where accidents do happen you know where that they don't realize how fast they can move or how quickly and and turn and but if you do know i think you can come away fairly unscathed i mean i've got one little bite and but that was my staff dropping a croc next to me rather than uh, rather than in the wild but I've nearly stepped on one and you know certainly when collecting eggs you know been very very close to them and not known that they were there but, are they uh, close to the city of Darwin or they're in in the harbour they're in the harbour mm. I mean the, the the problem crocodile program focuses on the area between Darwin Harbour and right through to um, the Howard River so any saltwater crocodile in there big or small is is to be removed for safety yeah like they remove 250 300 a year from darwin harbour and so had you had we not been removing them <laughs> they'd just be just building up where were we earlier uh berry springs, berry springs. Berry. we walked down to the mm. to the water 
Ooh. And um, we were looking at the archer fish, weren't we? Yep. And then all of a sudden, we got a load of bubbles came up out of the water. We just stepped back into <laughs> the berry springs. Yeah. Uh, were you right down at the to the 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 river, the creek? Yeah. We, yeah. we went yeah. to next to the near the cage. We yeah. there's, right there's a trap down there. there. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see the trap. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's well berries are an interesting an interesting area because you know they set traps. You know, from the Howard Buffalo Creek, Mickets Creek. There's traps everywhere. But still, crocs go right past them and they go all the way up the harbour and they go all the way up and then they get caught in the second trap mm. at Berry Springs before it gets into the, the place where people swim. Mm. And, and so, yeah, so you just got to come up with different methods. The traps are great, but then they'll also go out and you, you know, by spotlight and find them and, and, and remove them. But, but yeah, yeah. But Darwin Harbour in many ways would have been a great experiment to just leave it as it was and see how many ended up in there. Because historically, there was never a lot of crocodiles in Darwin Harbour. You know, there was crocs. You know, the, some of the first attacks we ever had occurred in Darwin Harbour you know, in the 1700s. So, because I, I suspect that the rate at which they f- would fill up, eventually would they would sort of even themselves out and say, right, no more, and anyone else would have just had to keep going to Western Australia or Timor or, or Papua New Guinea. But we've removed them and have done since 1979, so you can imagine the thousands that have been removed and still no impact on the, the whole population. These are all animals that are being kicked out of rivers by other crocs and try and find somewhere to live. And, yeah, so this idea that... Yeah, animals live in, in perfect harmony and, yeah, might be great for the movies, but I tell you what, for a crocodile in the wild in the Northern Territory, it's a hard life to survive, yeah. It, it's tough. It's, it's tough. not just us that struggle with population growth. No, no, no. The biggest, the biggest <laughs> threat to a little crocodile is a big crocodile. Yeah, yeah that's it. End of story. And un- until they're big enough where they can, you know, take, take on a, a, a big male or a big female, they're food. Their food, they cannibalise, yeah. Is there any exciting research that you can share with us that's going on at the moment? Oh, look, I think the the, the stuff where uh, the information we're gleaning from uh, this telemetry work has been very, very eye-opening, you know, and, and um, you know, and even for um, people that, like us who've been in it 40 or 50 years suddenly these new insights that come from the technology yeah the old days where you put on a radio transmitter and stood there with your your antenna you know and, and hope that he didn't swim away is now you know the, the technology has just made it so much easier to track these animals still expensive but so we're learning a lot from that then we're combining um the movement type information with dna and we're finding that there, there are like physical barriers along our coastline that the population on this side is, is different to the population on that side. So something's stopping them, mm. you know, Coburg Peninsula that sticks out. It's just something that says to them, you know, That's when you funny. get to that point, maybe yeah. <laughs> you go north. You know, it's, it's, it is, it's unusual. Um, and so the ability to... Uh, really all these various tools like there's DNA then there's uh, uh, just uh, tissue um, 
detecting various elements in, in the tissues themselves tells you where they've been living, in the bones, in, in the little osteoderm. So when you combine all those things together, you start starting to get a more complete picture of um, the population dynamics, what really makes these things move. Um, and But it's still uh, ongoing. You know, we, it still never, never stops, you know. On the other side, there's the... Um, uh, a lot of work being done on the um, antimicrobial aspects of the blood, the bile, the fat. You know, so there's uh, a lot of these things that you know, the Chinese have known for 4,000 years are suddenly being scientifically tested. And guess what? They actually do work, you know, where the, the fat is a great wound healer, much better than a lot of other, other things. The, the bile is, 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 uh, has it got anti-cancer properties. The blood same so that, that various that research has allowed us to really understand how these animals have lived for so long in, in these habitats that sometimes can be quite dirty and you know mm, how they can, the how they can lose a limb for example you know a, a whole amputated through fighting and then they'll heal up and and survive the infection so so that research is ongoing but it, it, it possibly could lead to it already has led to medication like tablets and stuff that um, can help people. Uh, that's natural, you know. Th these are things that indigenous people have been, you know, using, you know, for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, and we suddenly think we've discovered it. But you know, <laughs> we're, we're just you know refining. I think what a lot of this traditional knowledge has, has known for a long, long time. So they're interesting aspects, and and of course our conservation work, you know, just to to know that we are helping so many different populations of, of crocs around the world and, and, and the people that live around them, uh, you know, moving together, people and crocs and conservation is, is a good feeling, obviously. Yeah. I think one of my early questions was going to be, like, do we know most of the things we need to know about crocs or not? <laughs> well, I don't so think... No, I don't, I don't think so. No, no. I mean, people often say to me, you know, like, Jesus, how do you know all that stuff? You know, well, I've had 40 years of, you know, absorbing it, I suppose. Uh, but, but, no, there's still... Yeah, you know, there still is things out there that you know we don't understand, or that that we need to know to better understand and to better manage. Uh, movement was always the big one for us, the big hurdle, because you know we knew salties moved, but we didn't know who moved, where they went, um, and and it's still ongoing because uh, it's an expensive um, sort of work. But uh, you look, it's it. it yeah, I don't think our thirst for knowledge ever stops, to be honest. You know, it, it's always something to learn, and that's how science proceeds. You know, it, by bit, by bit, by bit, we, we learn and, and add and, and, hopefully, and hopefully learn from our mistakes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that, that's, yeah and, and many of these things uh, can be um, uh, transferred between species. You know, the sea turtles, for example, a lot of the work that we... We did with uh, with crocodiles, with things like density dependence that we really advocated from way, way, way back. Yeah, that we were, they were able to then demonstrate it in sea turtles of all things, you know, because you know we also did sea turtle work here, and, and we found that they were very aggressive. They were dominant animals, were killing other animals. 
all these things here, because everyone imagines sea turtles to be these, you know, <laughs> really, you know, and some of them are. <laughs> but there's some of them that, like the hawksbill turtles, that are, are very, very aggressive towards each other. They set up hierarchy, they set up territories. They, they'll actually fight each other. They'll, they'll kick each other out of their territories. All these things that, you know, people often say, ah, oh, crocodiles are different. Well, you know, something they're not. You know, a lot of those same concepts can be applied to other reptiles. It explains why some of the snakes can be harvested so sustainably for decades and decades and decades. And so we, we get involved with a lot of different things. And so the, what we've learnt from crocs, certainly with populations, we've been able to use that with, with other species. And, um, you know, the, I think the principles are the same. Yeah. Mate, thanks so much for that. It's it's great for people to... Cause we know, all know there's people that are against animals and in cages and you're making money from animals in cages, but people don't see it's like an iceberg. They see the little tip of it. They don't realise all the work that this funds, the education, the conservation. Oh, no, it's it's, it's huge and it's, yeah, and, and really... And all the animals you see behind cages and, or enclosures or wire, they would never have survived in the wild. You know, they, these are not... This has not been done at the expense of the wild. In fact, it's if we had not been able to make uh, crocodiles valuable in the Northern Territory, we would not have what we have now. There is absolutely no doubt about that at all. So, you know, doing this has helped conservation and if people can walk away with that message from here, I think we've chipped away at the, the ignorance just that little bit more. So, guys, come and see... Crocodilus Park, support what they do. Mate, thanks so much. No that problem. Was, I thank loved you. every second of that. My pleasure. And guys, thank you for listening.